Welcome to this episode of Senior Living Marketing Success, where we help you get more tours, more move-ins, and more reviews. In this episode, I talk with Lo Hornbuckle, the co-founder of Goodhorn Capital and the CEO of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. And we talk about what Lo is doing to improve senior care. Well, thanks so much for listening to uh, this new episode of Senior Living Marketing Success. Today's episode, I'm very excited that Lo Hornbuckle uh, is joining me. Uh, Lo, so good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Yeah, so Lo, you are uh, on Zoom. I see your screen says Goodhorn Capital, but I also know that you just opened up um, Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care of Lake Charles. So do you want to just kind of start with a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so Goodhorn Capital is our is our private equity firm that kind of helps uh, raise capital for uh, Sage Oak products. Uh, Sage Oak is uh, the operations company and sort of the forward facing brand. So Goodhorn Capital kind of interfaces with investors and Sage Oak is the operator and interfaces with uh, employees and, 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 uh, and clients, residents alike. Um, yeah, so we have uh, six uh, eight bed facilities in the Dallas area. And then uh, we've got two campuses, um, you know, opening or under construction right now. Um, so our Lake Charles location is five 16-bed care homes on a campus. Um, we call them planned care home communities. Look a lot like a regular neighborhood, except that instead of 3,000 square feet with families, they're 9,000 square feet with 16 seniors uh, purpose-built for that purpose. So really is a great permutation of a care home model, but also the big building model. Um, and we think there's some serious flaws with both residential assisted living as a model and also uh, big buildings. We think we found uh, a better mousetrap that sort of combines the best of both worlds. Um, so our Lake Charles campus uh, is opening uh, and taking residents uh, this, this month, uh, depending on when the show comes out, so July of 2021. And, and then our Denton campus, um, depending upon when we can get windows, because um, that's a fun thing right now being a developer, uh, sometime November to January timeline. So is the I'm seeing a lot more of these um, kind of neighborhood focused communities where, like you said, I think you said you got five, 16 bed homes. So does that, does it help the the senior who might have some, you know, cognitive issues? Does it help them really feel like a part of a, a of a community more? Is that kind of the idea behind why, why that's successful and so popular right now? I mean, there are a ton of outcome reasons to do that type of business. I think you've mentioned one of them. Um, you know, most people that have uh, dementia, especially in the South, um, you know, they didn't grow up in an apartment. And so they spent the last 40 or 50 years in, in, a, in a home, and but they used about 300 square feet of that home. So uh, a congregate setting that's in a home-like setting is going to be very much more familiar to someone going through a disease process that can often cause confusion or disorientation. Um, the other thing too, is we design our floor plans for the hallways. Our longest hallway is only about 50 feet because we design our bedrooms in quadrants. So there's a 16 bed house, but there's four quadrants of four beds with a, a center common area. So if you kind of picture a, an H um, with a real fat center, that's how we design our floor plans. And so what that means is, is that the, uh, the residents uh, much easier to locate their room, you know, uh, much, much uh, higher reduction in falls um, for their people that are mobility challenged. The kitchen's open. So, you know, they're interacting with the food. The food is an experience. It's not a, you know, cook it, building over and bring it over on a steam tray. So, you know, that's that's true of most residential assisted living. Um, they have scaling problems. They have challenges with that business. And so our, our campus brings all the scaling of a big building, but then gets the outcomes of the smaller settings, which are better. Uh, memory care really is our bread and butter, but you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people that have assisted living needs um, that are pretty acute. 
and uh, they need uh, they need a lot of care, uh, even if they have uh, full cognition. And um, you know they have mobility challenges, or they have something like congestive heart failure. Maybe they use a feeding tube. They've got swallowing problems. Those people are often um, what we call tweeners and end up in either skilled nursing or having to pay for private caregivers in a big box AL model. And so we're able to, with our ratios and our smaller footprint, we're able to deal with the higher care needs of folks that we don't see as having to go to skilled nursing. You know, um, I'm positive that, uh, you know, I, I do know that everyone would like to age in place at home. Uh, the one exception is they said they don't want to age in place at home the moment they become a burden on their families. That's what the surveys indicate. But one thing is no one's excited to go to a nursing home, right? So if you can keep people out of a nursing home and into a home-like environment on a pretty campus, um, at least that long-term care option sort of superior to what my good friend calls a hospital with a better paint job. And uh, that's, um, that's a big part of, of what we're trying to do is really change how long-term care can be delivered to those people that, that have high care needs. I love that. Uh, and and I, you really kind of answered one of the questions I was going to get to kind of your why, why, I mean, what, why, um, why do something different? Um, but you, you kind of answered that. So I love that. What would you say is, is the biggest obstacle, um, that, that you're facing in senior living or maybe, uh, with, with say joke where, where do you want to go with that? Well, I think we definitely could spend some more time on the, the why question for sure, yeah, just because, um, and, and happy to come back to the obstacle question. Um, you know, you said, why, why do something different? Well, I think the first thing is, is that everybody in the industry that I talk to, to a person, either in public or behind closed doors, sort of admits that long-term care is sort of fundamentally broken. Um, people don't realize assisted living is not that old. It was born in like 1984, 1983 in, 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 in Oregon. So it's, you know, it's about a 40-year-old concept. Um, and, um, you know, the way that, that, that care is being delivered, if you go to most assisted living buildings, they're, they're 90% the same. You know, they're, they're arguing over who's got the nicer gym, who's got the, the nicer chandelier. But um, for me, um, in 2014, my dad had a really bad experience on hospice. And um, my family spent, you know, better part of the year trying to decide, are we going to sue the hospice company based on the care that was delivered? And about the time the statute of limitations was running out, I sort of stumbled into this residential assisted living business. And I, you know, it, it wasn't something that I was like a linear, like, oh, my dad passed away. Let me start a company. But whenever, you know, this, this kind of came about and I started feeling those emotions and realizing like, this is my opportunity to make sure that nobody has to, you know, go through what I went through, you know? So I, I you know, whenever, and we're not a hospice company, but, but obviously most residents do go through end of life, um, uh, you know, on hospice in our homes. And so I'm always very attuned to that process and how the family feels about, you know, our ability to quarterback and interface with the hospice company. So that's really my personal why, but from an industry perspective, um, you, you know, you said, why do something different? I think um, right now is a horrible time to be an investor or uh, be involved in commoditized assisted living, memory care, skilled nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, most markets are overbuilt, occupancies at historical lows. So um, if you want to from a business perspective, you have to be unique. And if you want to change, um, you know, how outcomes are delivered, then your physical plant's a big part of that. You know, one of the cool things about our, our design is you can literally be in the nurse's station and you can oversee about 80% of the common area. Well, why is that? Well, now when you're charting, when you're doing medications, you can literally see if someone's about to fall, if there's a, a, a argument about to break out or someone's doing something inappropriately in the kitchen or whatever the case may be. So, you know, our physical plant really just allows us to sort of flow into a conversation about how operationally we're different. At the end of the day, a building is a building, you know, some good buildings help, but a great team in a bad building is going to, uh, going to win out any day over a poor team in a, in a great building. 
we just try to have both. We try to have mm-hmm. a great physical plan and then, you know, overlay our, our unique model. And, and a lot of that involves around being caregiver focused and having a strong uh, caregiver to resident ratio uh, combined with those, those smaller footprints means that, you know, you know, our, our caregiver, one thing no one talks about is caregiver per square feet. Right. So even if you have good ratios, it's very easy in a big building for someone to get 100, 100 yards, 150 yards away from somebody. You've got elevators. You've got a lot of challenges in those spaces. And so we've just turned the model on its head. We don't have an elevator. We don't have stairs in any of our assisted living and memory care facilities. And then when you have the campus design, you can have a park like setting. So it's really all about, um, you know, delivering a better outcome. It's about, you know, getting your unfair share of the market. You know, obviously, I know this is a show about marketing, um, you know you know, marketing, you can, you could be a better soldier and, and market better, but maybe you could just have a better rifle and then you could just be a mediocre soldier and your product so much better that, uh, that you win the battle. So, um, you know, really, really kind of, I accidentally did the purple cow thing by Seth Godin. I hadn't read his book at the time, but you know, from a sales and marketing guy, I just wanted, I just went and looked at projects and said, okay, well, what's the market missing? And mm-hmm. I thought sort of a boutique sort of higher end, care homes was something that Dallas needed. And then as I did, did more and more research, I realized there's a lot of markets out there that, that want, you know, high acuity care in a setting like this. Um, and uh, so that's kind of been our focus. Awesome. I, I love that. I think, I think that's such a, a, a fantastic why, a, a great way to look at it. And, and I know, obviously, your, your dad having that experience uh, and your family going through that um, just kind of gives you extra motivation to, to make it right and to make it better for others. Uh, I love that. I think that's great. What challenge would you say that the industry is, is facing today overall? You know, if you were to ask, you know, thousand CEOs or upper management of assisted living and memory care, skilled nursing, what the biggest challenges are in the industry, they would say staffing, staffing, and staffing, you know, right, right on down the list. Yep. Um, you know, America's had a, a healthcare worker shortage for a while now. I think we're up to about a million uh, caregiver shortage. And, um, you know, we got nurses shortages and then, you know, you, you combine that with COVID, um, you know, it was definitely a, a very challenging labor market and, and you're seeing it, you know, in every industry really where, um, and I don't really like the term low skilled workers, but just kind of, you know, anywhere in that kind of 10 to $20 an hour range, um, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of difficulty in, in finding, uh, finding staff, whether it be restaurants or, and it's especially acute in, um, in assisted living and memory care. And, and, and the, the really awful thing for our industry is we're kind of in a squeeze um, because um, one of the focuses uh, in our industry is, is solving the middle market, right? The people that have uh, more money than, than uh, would qualify for Medicaid, but that can't afford um, top-notch, you know, uh, assisted living or memory care. And um, that, that model for a long time was built on, in my opinion, sort of being exploitative of caregivers, right? Paying them only $10, $11 an hour for a very difficult job. And um, so as we're seeing the sort of wages increase, um, you're starting to see a lot of price pressure um, to see increases in pricing. And so I think the days of, you know, $3,500 assisted living are long gone um, that, you know, we're going to see you know, we're going to start to see, you know, low entry prices being 5,000 um, for assisted living and probably 6,500 for memory care. And, and it's a difficult spot because there's a lot of people that can't afford that. And so we're kind of in this push pull between sort of the, you know, making sure our caregivers are, are well-trained and, and feel respected and loved and supported and can have a living wage combined with there are people that can't afford, you know, $80,000 a year, mm-hmm. uh, you know, year in and year out for assisted living or memory care. And that's not, you know, irrespective of skilled nursing, which could be in $120,000 a year, $150,000 a year. So that's really the challenge in the business right now. You know, I think, um, 
you know, we're, we're going to have to um, really have a conversation with people about how care gets delivered. Um, you know, I think the only real solution right now, in my opinion, would be immigration. Um, I think there's probably a lot of people that would love to come to America to, to work as caregivers. There's plenty of countries where their medical licenses don't carry over. And so they may take some time. You know, if you're a nurse in a certain country, you don't become a nurse in America. There's plenty of physicians in other countries that don't become a physician in America and that would probably either want to work on becoming what they were in the prior country or be very happy, you know, being a caregiver or being a manager of an assisted living or memory care facility. So, you know, I think we need to have a real conversation about, you know, our, our labor issue in America. And I think the only, if you get bad certain these, you know, because it's understaffed, you know, it is what it is, but, you know, folks that aren't, getting poor incontinent care or folks that are, you know, falling or folks that are not being redirected appropriately because of a staffing shortage in healthcare. It's, it's really terrible to see. And, um, you know, I think that's going to be the big, um, the big challenge for the industry for, for a generation, I think. How would you define success? And I know a lot of people, um, in senior living, obviously a metric of success, as far as, you know, how well you're going to do on the bottom line is where's your occupancy? Are, are you full? And I think that's how a lot of people look at success, but, um, I, I kind of get the, the, the sense from you that there's probably some other metrics to success that might even be a, a little more important. So what, what does success look like for you? Yeah. I mean, um, it's a great question. Um, you know, that's a question I struggle with, um, because, you know, I've done so many things in the last five years with Sage and and Goodhorn Capital that I really never thought I was going to do. And so every time I kind of think like, Oh, you know, I'll be, um, I I think as long as this stuff stays fun, I'm going to continue to do it. And as long as I feel like we're, we're doing the right mission. So, you know, what, I think what I'd like to see, um, and and I don't know if if I feel successful, but what I want to accomplish is, um, and maybe I'll never, I'm maybe one of those people that maybe never feel successful. That might be one of my, my burdens to bear, but, um, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to start a, a new Sejo community. I mean, development takes, you know, three to four years. And so I'd like to start a new uh, Sejo community every year and then build out a really strong uh, regional company. Um, and then, you know, I, I think, um, you know, for our investors and, and for, um, for our model, um, I, I, I want to disrupt the industry, but I don't want to like literally be the person that, that disrupts the industry. What I really want to do is I want to, um, I want to set a model uh, that can be mimicked and, and, and be cop- copied and, and duplicated and imitated. Um, and, you know, I hope that people, you know, uh, my focus will be on Texas and the Texas region. And if somebody wants to do this in Florida or wherever, then that, that'd be great. Um, you know, so I, I really just want to, I want to, I want to make sure that our model has, uh, the appropriate amount of market share. Cause I do think it's a better model for quite a few families. I sometimes get accused of being anti big building and, and, and sometimes that's kind of true, but really it's just big buildings are such a dominant position in the marketplace. Um, it, it's sort of like, you know, some families want to live in apartments and some families want to live in a single family home rental. There needs to be options and choices in the marketplace. So mm-hmm. I'm just a passionate advocate for our model. Uh, juxtaposed to big buildings because I don't think our model has the appropriate market share. I think a lot of people should be in co- smaller congregate settings. And the one thing that I know proved that was COVID, right? If you look at the mm-hmm. numbers, small settings just crushed it on infection control as compared to big buildings. I mean, we have, we had 40 residents in our, in our five care homes that were open in COVID and didn't get a single resident case of COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, one time we sent a resident out to a big building and they, they got COVID and passed away. Um, and, uh, you know, so big buildings that are really tough go, uh, they really don't do a good job, uh, with infection control. It's, it's really not their fault, but, you know, I, you know, if you think about our campus, 
my 80 beds or 96 beds have five or six front doors, right? So the, the visitors coming through, the exposure risks are lower. If you have an outbreak of, 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 of something, whether it be flu or norovirus or whatever, you can really, you can close down a house and protect the other residents on the campus. And so, um, you know, I really believe that, you know, for me, success is, is having our model expand and gain traction. And, uh, you know, I think rather than someone biased, I think we're probably going to get, uh, get acquired. Uh, my suspicion is, is that one of the big players is going to look at what we're doing and look at our metrics and look at what we're able to accomplish. Be like, look, we don't really understand how this works. Um, so we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll acquire you and then uh, let you kind of run your division. So I think you're going to see some consolidation. And, and I think we'd probably hopefully if we get enough scale and have, you know, a couple thousand beds, then we'll probably be a good, good acquisition target for somebody. And it seems like you, you brought up a couple of times, like different data points and why you're making all these decisions. It seems like you're not just making these decisions about how you're going to build. And, you know, I just I think this is a good idea. So let's just try to do it. It seems like you you really take data into consideration when thinking like, should we should we build our facility this way? How should our care look? How many beds did did data go into a lot of your decisions that you were making? I mean, yeah, I would say so, but more along the lines of, um, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of a, you know, I, I, I run off emotion, but I also combine data with emotion. So, you know, I always kind of joke, there's, there's four partners in our, in our group that are, they're active in the business. And one of them's all data. One of them's like 50, 50, I think I'm 25% data, 75% story. And we got another guy that's like hundred percent story. So, um, you know, I, I, there was an element of data, but you have to understand that's kind of unique is that, um, there really aren't a lot of companies and, and look, we're small. So it's not like, you know, it's not a bragging point. It's just a fact about our company. Um, there really aren't a lot of companies that are vertically integrated in the sense that they raise their own capital, they source their own land, they, they can build and develop. Um, and so, and then operate. And so if you think about it, our design process, there's no back and forth between the designer and the operator and the developer. We're all of those. And so, you know, I've got, you know, and my specialty is not on the construction side, but I've got a partner that really, that really works hard on that front and understands it. And he's, he's committed uh, to building a, a good product. And uh, so what that means is, is that we don't necessarily have to make some of the sacrifices that are common amongst other firms when, you know, there's a third party operator and the third party operator has a seat at the table, but they don't really, you know, we have all the seats at the table from that perspective. And so, you know, we're going to defend the integrity of the operations and, and, the, and the way that the building is necessary. And so that just means that we're able to get a better final product. I'm sure there's a lot of people that start off with a good product and then it just gets, you know, redlined and, and, and mm -hmm. once the accountants and and, uh, you know, all the, the CFOs go through it and then, you know, labor costs and su supply shortages all kind of have their say, then you kind of get this watered down version. Um, and so that's why a lot of a lot of your clients or not necessarily your clients, but the people you interface with, mm -hmm. you know, they're focused on the wrong thing. You know, I just spoke to my team in, in Lake Charles yesterday and I was kind of training them. We don't have a sales and marketing person right now. Right now, the ops team is doing all the sales and marketing. And I, and I like that because this is such a clinically heavy marketing process, right? People are gonna have questions, they're gonna have things that kind of pop up. And if it's a nurse, you know, in the conversation, then they can easily answer a question about, you know, their someone's deep vein thrombosis, for example, that might be beyond a marketer's scope to do that. So um, I was training them and, and I said, look, our buildings are unique and that's fine, but they're gonna know that in five minutes. So, you know, if we're gonna do an hour and a half tour, probably an hour and 15 minutes are sitting belly to belly, with the family, with the resident, having a conversation, learning what's really going on. 
And uh, once we understand um, what their problem is, then we can only then propose a solution. A good friend of mine has a phrase, I think it's really appropriate in, in our industry, that um, prescription uh, without diagnosis is malpractice. And so we never offer ourselves a solution until we understand, um, you know, what that client needs, what that family needs, because ultimately it doesn't, you know, people can have two exact situations that are exactly the same and, and their needs and wants are totally different. Um, you know, a good example of that is falls. Um, some families are like, we want to avoid falls at all costs and they're willing to do anything to avoid falls. That seems like it would be logical. But on the other hand, you have some families that are like desperate for mom or dad to regain mobility. Well, going through physical therapy and, and, and pushing yourself and, and uh, pushing yourself to walk further and further every day increases your fall risk, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you have to understand that, you know, our, our goal, our job is to deliver what the resident and the family, especially the power of attorney, uh, it, what they want. And so we have to understand th those goals and needs and, and we're not, you know, the perfect environment for every resident. So sometimes when we, when we learn that, we recommend another solution. That's not us. Um, and so that's a big part of kind of who we are and kind of what we do and, and sort of our marketing culture is really just about finding uh, their pain and, uh, and, and their pleasure and uh, leading them to pleasure and delivering them from pain. That's basically our, our job. You've mentioned uh, really multiple things that sets you and say joke apart from competitors but is, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you would say is a big differentiator between you and, and your competitors yeah probably i mean I, I i think um i had some i've had some conversation with my team i think they would probably say uh sort of my decentralized style of management um I, you know i'm scaling the company i'm learning um you know i'm certainly not a very process and systematized guy and, and that can create some havoc but what it does mean is, is that, um, and I'll tell you a story, my, my executive director in Lake Charles said, hey, man, um, can you send me, uh, when I first hired him before we'd hired a team, he said, hey, can you, can you send me our organizational chart? And I said, well, no. He said, he said, why? I said, we don't have one. And he says, well, okay. Well, I said, here's the way we're going to do this. You're good at certain things and you have certain talents, okay? You're not clinical, so you're going to have to hire a nurse, obviously. We're going to hire the nurse. We're going to learn a little bit about him or her and and then, uh, and then what we're going to do is we're going to hire a couple more talented people that have, you know, attributes that we think will be successful in the business. And then we're going to analyze the team and go, okay, what are we missing? And we're going to fill those holes. Um, too often we, we create these job descriptions and we create these org charts and we're like, you got to do this, you got to do this. But the truth is, is that there, there's like, you know, if there's all these things you got to do to be successful, it doesn't really matter who on the team does them, except for a few things that are required, like maybe maybe a, a non-clinical person couldn't do an assessment, for example. Um, so what that focus and that philosophy, I really believe people have, you know, have have talents and things that if you let them, you know, do what they do well and get out of their way. So a lot of my communities are going to look and feel differently. Um, it's not it's not supposed to look exactly the same, just like no family um, ever no two families get the same tour from us because if their needs are unique, then their tour process would be unique. Every resident, every family, every house, every house manager, every ED is going to run things just a little bit differently. Um, and the truth is, if this was a process and system business, then the big powerful competitors um, would have better outcomes. There's no evidence to suggest they do. Um, and so really, this is a people business. We're an, we're an HR company and our job is to unleash people's talents to allow them to do their job well. So I think that's a big part of who we are. It's one of the reasons why I don't want to be a big company because I don't know that that's that easy, but I think being a, you can be a very strong regional company. 
with a philosophy like that. And, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I want to be imitated and not, uh, and not go out and, you know, try to open, you know, 5,000 facilities or something, because um, I like the idea of letting people step into what they do well. And, uh, you know, you know, if someone else had a story like me and my dad, why would I get in their way? They're going to do things the right way. Let me just figure out how to support them and get them in the right position and let them build a team. Um, so my teams all look very different. Um, you know, some of them have different strengths and weaknesses, but in the day, you just got to go get the job done. It doesn't matter how, um, as long as you're legal and ethical, um, then how you get the job done makes no difference to me. You know, you can, you can do it however you want to do it. As long as, you know, our residents are safe and happy and our families are satisfied and the community is, is welcoming of us. So, um, the, the idea behind the, the no organizational chart was your executive director surprised by that? And and now after kind of experiencing that, were they like, yeah, this is this really helps me to kind of thrive? What would you say? I can't really use him as a metric because he he's a he's a good he's a good dude, but he he loves my ideas. So I I think I, I he he probably likes my ideas more than me. So um, he's he's like I love it. You know, he he went for he worked for you know a Brookdale the world or a big a big facility, and so he'd kind of been in you know that environment where um, look checklists are great, but they can also suck the talent out of an organization, you know, um, limit idea so, creation, stuff like that. Well, too. right. And, and when someone gets to learn how to do something and build a process themselves that suits their needs, they learn the process and they, and they, and they, and they learn mistakes and they, they just become more efficient and, you know, trying to tell someone how to do something, you know, it's like, if you cook the meal and the meal's good, then it doesn't really matter to me how you got there. Now we can make suggestions like, Hey, these three ways are the best way to go you know, but, um, no, he liked it. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, a lot of what we do is not just to get a result now, but also to set people up to where they have the foundation, uh, the knowledge so that, you know, they, I, I'm trying to teach people how to think, um, as opposed to, um, you know, tell them what to do. Um, if I can help my team think like, I think is the best way to think, then when a situation comes up, they're like, look, I know what to do here because um, I know where to put the customer first here. I know that, you know, um, you know, even though I don't feel like we're in the wrong, I know we have to kind of accept that the perception is that we did. So we just try to, I, I'm really trying to um, instill in the team, hey, this is what I think that this should look like. And when you get in situations, just kind of have these certain things be your North Star. And then, you know, if you if you make a mistake, fine, uh, we'll, we'll learn from it. But if your North Star is, you know, patients first, family first, you know, take good care of the staff, then uh, we can we can correct uh, a lot of the other a lot of the other stuff. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Anything about Good Horde Capital, say joke about, you know, what what you're doing next in the industry? If you're down for some shameless promotion, sure. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, I was going to ask where people could learn more about what you're doing or any of your other things. So yeah, feel free there's, to talk about that. There's obviously uh, a few, a couple ways to to that 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 I could be a value to somebody, or or, or we could have, have an exchange of ice. The first is we're going to be hiring, uh, you know, a rock star team in Denton, Texas, which is just north of Dallas. So if anybody is intrigued by this model and uh, they're local to Dallas and, and, and want to you know, potentially have a conversation about the executive director job or a nursing position or, or a marketing position. That would be one way. The second is, is that, um, you know, a lot of people are intrigued by this business, uh, but don't want to be the operator or don't want to do those things. So obviously they can go to goodhorncapital.com. Um, we raise capital for these projects. So if some people want investing exposure um, to, 
um, these types of deals and some other stuff as well, then they can, you know, they can they can enjoy the demographic benefits of of what's happening with our aging population without having to take the 3M phone calls, without having to hire a big team, without having to change residents, without having to, you know, hire and fire staff. Um, and so that, you know, that would be another way we could add value or interface with, with your listening audience. But uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, your marketing concepts. And, and I think we, you know, as a company bring some interesting ideas together. So I was excited to, to have a conversation with you and maybe there's a future collaboration uh, somewhere down the, down the road between us. But uh, yeah, so looking to hire a lot of people and uh, also, uh, you know, if somebody wants to learn about investing, uh, they can just go to goodhorncapital.com. And uh, if they if they want to uh, reach out about the uh, uh, about the job opportunities, the best thing to do just for simplicity, just send an email to low at Goodhorn Capital. So LOE at GoodhornCapital.com. Um, I'll just save them having to remember two websites, even though they really should go to the Sage Oak site. But that, that's fine. Well, Lou, thank you so much. This has been so good. And I, I love your um, kind of your, your approach to all this, because I think you mentioned, you know, you don't want to be the I forgot how you worded it, but, you know, the guy that's causing the disruption but it seems like you've got such a, a desire just to make things better for people uh and i think when that's ultimately what you're striving for you're you're going to be successful i'm not going to burn it down but i'll i'll light the match i guess yeah. is what i'm trying to say i'm, I'm willing <laughs> to i'm willing to help start the the, the rebuild right. of the industry but uh i uh i love what we do and it's really exciting but uh it, it takes it, it takes a toll on on me and it takes a toll on our team and you know, ultimately, a lot of what senior housing is, is people giving of themselves to others. Mm -hmm. um, and you can only do so much of that before you just don't have anything left. So, uh, you know, for us, we just want to build a, a great regional company and, and, and then uh, have other people do that. And, and um, you know, then allows us to, to both change the industry in, 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 in our little corner of the world, but also have good quality of life. And, and I want that for myself. I want that for my team. And, and obviously, of course, the residents and families and everybody sort of connected with the company, and including the investors. Lo, thanks so much again for hopping on this podcast and um, look forward to uh, hearing more about what you're going to be doing in the future. Cool. Thanks so much. We really appreciate you listening to this episode of Senior Living Marketing Success. If you need some help with your marketing, go to Facebook.com and join our Facebook group, Senior Living Marketing Success. We'd love to learn more about you, what you're needing help with so that we can create free content for you that will help you with your marketing. So again, go to facebook.com and join the group Senior Living Marketing Success. Have a great day.